Good evening, everyone. Hello, and welcome to the Seymour Theatre Centre at the University of Sydney. Tonight, we're very pleased to present a talk by Mathis Wackenagel on many issues, mainly the ecological footprint. Tonight's talk is the third in the, this university, Sydney University's, new series of international public lectures called Sydney Ideas. And after some very interesting uh, ideas from our first two speakers, a journalist and a sociologist, I'm very pleased to have a discussion on a relatively new idea, the ecological footprint by Mathis. Uh, tonight, Mathis will speak for about 45 minutes, then he'll take some questions from the audience, and then he'll also be available for a book signing in the foyer afterwards. Now, Mathis is in Australia as a guest of EPA Victoria, and his visit is also associated with the Integrated Sustainability Analysis Group at the University of Sydney. So thank you to both of those groups for making Mathis available to, for this public talk tonight. Now, also, I'm going to quickly ask you to turn off mobile phones, um, as it, it will affect Mathis's talk. It's on a radio mic today. So, to introduce Mathis properly, I'd like to introduce Greg Bourne, who is currently CEO of WWF Australia. I'm sure you're all familiar with WWF, uh, formerly known as the World Wildlife Fund, which has become one of the world's largest and most respected independent conservation organisations. With over 80,000 supporters and many active projects in Australia and Oceania, WWF works to conserve Australia's plants and animals by ending land clearing, addressing climate change and preserving and protecting our fresh water, marine and land environments. So thank you, Greg Bourne of WWF. Uh, great. Thanks very much indeed. I'm not going to stay up here too long, but I'd also... Um, like to uh, thank uh, the EPA in Victoria and Terry Ahern is at, at the back of the room somewhere and you, ca and you can't see anyone up here when, with these lights, just warning you right now, you can't see anyone at all. And uh, also to thank uh, Christopher Day and Manfred Lenson of the Integrated Sustainability Analysis Group. Um, the footprint is a really interesting uh, uh, concept and uh, before I read just the tiniest part uh, of this CV here. I'd like to just say WWF has been working with Mathis since 1996 and uh, we've been producing the Living Planet Report, some of which you, some, some of you will have seen this report uh, over the years. And one of the frightening things to me is how you see the footprint go up and biodiversity go down. And with uh, WWF being uh, an organisation really concerned about biodiversity, we've been clearly thinking about this a lot and how do we communicate it. And uh, just recently, one of our folks um, had the fantastic idea of, of, you know, sort of conjuring up the image of the Monty Python foot that comes out of the sky. And many of you will remember the Monty Python foot that comes out of the sky and crushes everything. And then directly below the foot, um, it, you know, you choose whichever piece of biodiversity you particularly like or favour. But underneath that, what we have started doing is putting a spring. And the idea is that uh, we need to build resilience. Um, we need to take our footprint off and lighten it for sure, but we also need to build resilience. And there are, are twin uh, activities going on. So Mathis, when he talks, will talk very much about the footprint work, and he will show very much how biodiversity has gone down. Uh, and we will also be talking more and more about how can we in Australia and in other parts of the world uh, build the resilience that we need uh, in nature. Um, 
just, um, I'm not going to read the whole of this CV, that's for sure, uh, mainly because you can pull it off the web. But uh, Mathis was born and raised uh, in Switzerland. He just recently had a conversation in German with one of our uh, people, Nicky Marcus, whose father's in here somewhere. It was in German and it was on bats. Um, but uh, <laughs> compl completed his degree in, uh, in Switzerland and studied mechanical engineering at the uh, Swiss Federal Institute of Technology. Uh, he then moved over to British Columbia um, and uh, worked in Vancouver. And it was there at his doctoral dissertation with William Rees that he created the ecological footprint concept. And I think all of us in this room should be indebted to the two of you for creating that because your footprints are going around the world. Mathis. Thank you so much. Thank you so very much for coming here. It's kind of more kind of like a stand-up comedy place, it looks like, but so I hope it won't be too boring. It's wonderful to be in Australia. Uh, to me, I think, you know, the footprints about how can we live lighter, like treading lighter, some people say. And so for me, Australia is really the ultimate footprint country because when I came here for the first time, I realized like footprint has become part of the national greetings. People said, bye-bye, see you lighter. <laughs> said, wow, that's already incorporated in Australia. So I'm, I'm really glad to be here. And um, actually tell you why talking about treading lighter reducing a footprint may actually not be the best way forward. I went to, I had to travel, like we had a, a button made by a large high, no, it's actually a, a large electric power utility. It has huge nuclear power plants, enormous coal plants. Um, and they had a business, they had, they had a environment and business integration department. And uh, then it closed down at one point, and they had some money left, and they printed these buttons that said, reduce your footprint. And we were very proud. We handed that to everybody. Reduce your footprint. And then I traveled to Chile. It was about two, three years later uh, to give a lecture, like here. And, and in the back, there was the Brevin students. And so there was this woman at the back. She said, why should I reduce my footprint? So that you can eat more chocolate? Yeah. Very brilliant. So, I mean, that changed our campaign. So now we say... What's in it for you? you know? Because if it doesn't work for you, don't use it. You know? It's like a bit selling a fridge. You, know? you don't want to convince people, you have to have a fridge and people really don't want it. You know? You know, have your fridge. But these people are really happy having their fridge. They don't want to give it back. You know? in, some, in the same way, we have to develop footprint applications that people say, wow, my life now is better, more easy, more fulfilling because I have it. And then that's how it spread. Now, how do we do it? That's, I hope you'll see it more towards the end. But essentially, I think, what is really useful uh, about the footprint is to make sustainable development much more specific. Because I don't know how many of you have heard of the term sustainable development. Yeah. How many of you think it's a very specific term? And then probably very few say me. But actually, if you think about it, you know, in terms of public policy terms, there are, I don't know of many more specific terms than sustainable development. Think of liberty, progress justice, fairness, democracy, important concepts, yet uh, not very clear in terms of you know, how we measure them. But sustainable development is quite different because it builds on a concept that is called development, which was mainly put forward after World War II to say, perhaps it's better rather than to kill each other, um, to help each other have a better life. That's a noble thing, you know, so have long lives, 
have uh, fulfilling lives, have access to opportunities, to education. So that's what people call development. And then at the end of the 20th century, people came to this incredible realization. Wow, there's only one planet. So how can we have development? How can we have human development? That's the challenge of sustainable development within the means of one planet. So we can become very specific, and I will get even more specific for you. To say, in order to find out to what extent we are within the means of one planet, very simplistically we can say the planet is the biggest solar collector at our disposition, which transforms the energy of nature, about 175,000 of, of the sun, of 175,000 terawatts, into regenerative like biomass. We use it, we turn it into waste, and so we have these two things. We have a provider of, of ecological capacity, a supply of nature, we could say. And we have human demand on nature. And so like with money, where we have kind of how much money do I earn, how much money do I spend, how many assets do we have, how many liabilities do we have, in the same way for nature, we can use this concept of saying how much nature do we have, how much do we use. Businesses, before they had access to accounting, the Italian, I think, invented accounting about 1600 or something. Only family businesses were possible. You know? People would put just all their money on the mattress, and from time to time they looked on the mattress and said, is it increasing or decreasing? Are we doing well? Should we be worried? Uh, and then once you had accounting, you could have much more complicated structures. Corporations really flourish, perhaps too much, I don't know, but accounting is really key to it. And that's the same with nature. If we don't have an idea of how many resources we have, how many we use, we just go bankrupt. We plan for bankruptcy. That's actually what we can see. We are liquidating our assets. Now, how can we operationalize that? How can we find out how much we use and how much we have? Now, how much we have is relatively simple, one planet. And about a quarter of the surface of the planet is ecologically productive. That means that's where you have most green stuff, you know, some in the sea, uh, some on the land. And, and then just to make it more specific, to get an idea of uh, what, how much that is per person. Uh, about 1.8 hectares of ecologically productive space per person in the world. When I came last time to Australia, uh, people already then said, see you, li uh, see you lighter. Uh, but uh, then it was actually 1.9 global hectares. So in two years, we have lost one digit point uh, on the scale. So that's what we have available. And then we can say, how much do we use? That's what the ecological footprint is. How big of a farm is necessary? not a real farm, but biologically productive space is necessary for you to produce your food, to produce your fiber, um, to absorb your waste, to house your house, etc. Then we add it all up, and then that's the space on this planet for you, not for me, in competition with me, in competition with the elephant, in competition with the seal. That's your space that supports you. That's the ecological footprint. And then we can apply this to sustainable development. And this actually was first introduced by a French researcher who very simply said, you know, development, whether you like it or not, you know, the United Nations measures it with a human development index. Comes out every year and essentially says, do we have long lives? I like a long life, you know. Do we have access to education? Um, that's what universities are all about, so you have had this chance. Um, do we have access to income? Um, and we can say, oh, that's not that important. I can easily say that because in the evening I open the fridge, I eat $2 worth of cheese without thinking. Now that's the budget of about 2 or 3 billion people on the planet for their entire day. So I just had a little bit, just ate $3 of cheese, you know. 
Wow. So it's easy for me to say, oh, income doesn't matter. It does matter. It does, it does make it easier. So HDI may be a crude measure. Nevertheless, it's a measure of development, one kind of development. And the United Nations says more than 0.8 HDI, they would call high development. Now, just to put that in perspective, Libya just barely doesn't make it. It's at 0.79, Libya. Just to give you a sense of where that is. And then we can um, say, yeah, that's development, human development. But we said there's only one planet. Okay, there are these 1.8 hectares of ecological productive space. That was at 1.9 two years ago. That's the barrier on this side. And um, to make the development really reproducible or replicable worldwide, to take a model of a national economy and say, could we do that worldwide? We would have to do it within these 1.8 global hectares. So essentially, what we have is a little box here. And you can say this box really represents sustainable development. You know? Above 0.8 global hectares, uh, uh, HDI, Human Development Index, and less than 1.8 global hectares. So what I invite you to do is to think inside the box, not outside of the box. You know? uh, it's the expensive consultants who tell you about thinking outside of the box and cheap. Um, <laughs> And then you can look at where are the countries, uh, and you can see different countries have different challenges. Uh, and then here, just the same graph with newer uh, data points, and actually looking at the last 25 years. Where are we today? That's um, a country that has a huge space agency, as you can see. Uh, that's where they were 75, uh, 1975, 25 years ago. Are countries moving towards sustainability, or are they not? Now, I challenge you, is sustainable development a very mushy concept? I think being in here is just a necessary condition. I don't know exactly where it is, but we can see uh, it already gives us a pretty good indication in which direction we need to go and gives us a pretty good indication whether countries do move in this direction or not. Now, talking about these 1.8 global hectares and recognizing that perhaps we're not the only species here. That's why WWF exists and say, wow, yeah, perhaps worldwide we may exploit about 10,000 species you know, as we want them, or they exploit us. Let's say the flu virus exploits us, or we want to eat pigs or whatever. You know? So there are other species that live with us, but then most other 10, billion, 10 million species are in competition with us. Now the question is, how much do we want to leave for other species? How much do we want for ourselves? E.O. Wilson. Um, one of the creators of the concept of biodiversity, a uh, Harvard biologist, he says, let's put about half aside for other species because the genetic diversity we have is really one of the biggest assets we have inherited. And he's very committed to, to well-being. What would that mean? That 1.8 hectares would be divided by 2 uh, to 0 0.9 hectares. So you can become very specific. If somebody asks you, what's the sustainable development thing all about? You can say, oh, how can we live well? That's what it's all about. How can we live well? And if you want to leave something for other species, you know, uh, something less than 1.8 hectares per person at the current population level. If we grow to 9 billion, then it will be 50% less, uh, etc. Now, some people don't like the footprint. I can't understand why, but <laughs> some people don't. And, and, and what we say is perhaps it's a bad name, you know, how's it called? A rose by any name, you know, this thing. Somebody said. Anyhow, so what really is under the footprint is a research question. That's what we're committed to. A research question that says, how much of the regenerative capacity of the planet 
is occupied by human activities? Because we think that's a very relevant question. And if people say, oh, all these value judgments, I would say, yeah, our value judgment was to choose this question. You know, there's nothing to reason about whether you should do it or not. That's what we chose. We think that's an interesting question. Now, people may say, that's not a relevant question. Then we say, oh, how interesting. So, for example, for a farmer, is it relevant to know whether they have 10 hectares of farm, 100 hectares, or 1,000 hectares? You know? Why is it not relevant for us as society? So that would be the discussion. So, okay, it's a relevant question. But I still don't like the footprint. So, okay, is it not well done? Is there a better method? Because as soon as there's a better method, we'll jump ship. You know, because we think that's what we're really committed to. Not footprint as a name, not the results we generated, but say, without knowing how much of the plan we use, sustainable development is futile. Or development is futile. Or then let's be honest. If it's not relevant, let's call it accelerated development. Because there are lots of people who need more corrugated roofs, more rice, more electricity. Um, so then let's just be honest. Okay. Now, just in terms of the theory, because at at we are at the university, what's the underlying theory? The underlying theory is to say yield, yield is amount of potatoes that you can get per year, per hectare. Hmm? That's what it is. Now you can do a little transformation algebraically. You know, that's all you do, and then you get this formula. And then you need to know how to subtract and add, and that's all. Then you're a bit in business. You know, that's, of course, the devil is in the detail. And so it's a bit more complicated than that. But I mean, essentially, that's the underlying structure. And you have about 5,000 data points per country and per year. Uh, for the last 40 years. And it takes our computers, two computers parallel, about 13 hours, because possibly we programmed them badly, we could do it faster, but <laughs> it's just overnight and it doesn't matter. It takes five hours of 13 hours. Um, and uh, so, so they turn out the whole time series for all the 150 countries, 40 years, and then the result is concentrated in this table here for the globe as we add up all the countries. Again, 1.8 hectares per person available. Uh, and then we say, perhaps not all should be used by people. Hmm? Perhaps not. Uh, and then we use 2.2. And I know some of you will say, he must be lying. How can we use more land than what there is? Hmm? And the answer is pretty simple. How can we spend more money than we have? Uh, how can we cut more trees that are being regrown? How can we fish more fish than is being restocked? How can we pump more water out of the ground than is being recharged? We can. Um, so it just means we use the regenerative capacity, we use the resources more rapidly uh, than they rebuild. So we can look at the ratio now at 1.2, or in other words, it takes about one year and three months to regenerate what we use within one year. Uh, we can look at that ratio over time. As a ratio, like if we took a look at number of Earths available, it's a flat line, and then we can compare that <laughs> against how much we use. And when I was born, we used about half a planet. And then I, I got more and more hungry. So we can look at it country by country, um, region by region, farm by farm, person by person. And one way we bring the information into the world together with our partner organizations and the three partner organizations sponsoring this event, uh, the three organizations sponsoring our events are actually partners in Global Footprint Network, and I will talk more about that. Uh, with WWF, we're bringing out living plan reports. Um, and it's actually the most quoted report in WWF history, and the second most quoted one is the 2002 report that preceded the 2004 report. Um, and we brought out some regional ones too. For example, the last regional one for Europe 
the president of the European Commission, who presides over 450 million people, uh, imposed himself to write the foreword. And he talks about ecological limits here. He says, it's important to respecting the limits of the planet's natural resources. Um, and he actually, he did impose himself because he couldn't find us. He thought we did it out of the Belgium uh, office of WWF International, where they lobbied the European Commission. Uh, but he tried to call the national organization of the Belgian WWF and just couldn't find us, and he was very frustrated. But we let him. We let him give us his foreword. Uh, and, and so what he, can, what he can do then is to look at now how has the consumption pressure changed over time. This shows just the intensity of footprint uh, over the last 40 years, how it has changed. And I come originally from Switzerland, and you can see th that area, like Central Europe, hasn't changed that much over the last 40 years. So we live in this illusion of saying, oh, everything is still the same, nothing has changed, you know, everything's under control, it must be sustainable. We don't realize that the world is changing extremely rapidly. We think continuity, that's good, en that's good enough. Actually, unfortunately, the bad news is not anymore, because the world is changing so rapidly. Now, this is also a map for those of you who are in shopping mall um, development. That's where it tells you where to build the next shopping mall. Um, <laughs> And we actually work with shopping mall distributors. I will talk about that later on because they have seen the value of footprint. Uh, not just for locating new malls, but actually how to drive resource efficiency. And perhaps the most important message that I will bring to you today, I think, is the following. The future will no longer be divided between developing and developed nations because this concept just doesn't work anymore physically. If we all would live like us worldwide, We'd need about three, four, five planets. You know, just, it's a dream that cannot be fulfilled. It's a, it's a, it's a dream that is uh, uh, self-destructive. But the future would be divided by, between ecological debtors and ecological creditors, meaning countries that use more than what they have available in their countries or less than what is available in their countries. Now, interesting enough, some of these countries are recognizing that the wind is changing. For example, the footprint... Um, has been adopted as one of the indicators of the Biodiversity Convention, which is something parallel to Kyoto. I think, as, is Australia part of the Biodiversity <coughs> Convention? Yeah, okay. Great, thank that you. Yes. Yeah, that one, yes. Um, and um, which countries were actually pushing for the footprint? Russia, big green giant. Brazil, big green giant. Colombia. Now, it doesn't mean that Russia and Brazil are using their ecological resources particularly wisely. They just have a lot. So they have, it's kind of a new poker in the international negotiations. Um, let me just look at something else, how WWF uses the ecological footprint to make their life easier, because they don't do it because they don't have enough stuff to do. I know Greg's very busy, and uh, he doesn't need to do anything else. Uh, but why would they then take on the footprint? Because it helps to show that as long as we increase human pressure, it's impossible to save pandas and tigers and other animals, you know? So, um, and to reduce this, we need to do it in fair ways, because otherwise we just have more conflicts. So sustainability is at the core of conservation and of any other operation in the world, too. Because if we continue to increase, what we see is the decline of what Greg mentioned, of average population size of vertebrate species. So if you looked at the average size, it's kind of a Dow Jones index, you know, it's but for species, what's the average population size of vertebrate species? On average, 40% smaller now than it was 30 years ago. So you can see, wow, there's a kind of a funnel. Uh, how can we overcome this? Uh, now, there are tabloids that have written about it. 
So they have used our research. But this story is actually true because uh, we did the research. <laughs> Three planets, if everybody lives like us, economist readers. Uh, we can also look at scenarios. And here we didn't do anything particularly innovative. We just used scenarios of the United Nations agencies. So we didn't come up with our own numbers. We just used United Nations Population Fund numbers, IPCC, all the most moderate, the most moderate scenarios that they could think of and added them up and said, okay, what would happen if they talked to each other? Actually, that would be their combined moderate scenario, moving from using 1.2 planets now to two planets. Now, I'm born here. I have a son. He was born here. He will be as old as me about here. Oh, wow. That doesn't add up. Uh, what's the debt that we are accumulating over time? Is it possible to go that path? Now, so far, the debt that we have accumulated in here is about two and a half planet years. It took, takes two and a half years to regenerate this liquidation of capital, you know, the accumulated deficit of every year. Does that make sense? Is that very mathematical? Integration. Yeah, integration. Who has had calculus? <laughs> oh, okay, here's a short inter introduction to calculus. This area on the curve, Integral? Okay. Anyhow, so <laughs> now how big was the, is the debt if we accumulate this deficit? If we actually would go this path and then miraculously say, oh, perhaps let's go back to one planet right here. Huh? Um, would actually add up to about 40 planet years worth of debt. Is that possible? Is that possible? A forest can accumulate about 50 years worth of bioproductivity. You know, so you can liquidate in one year 50 years worth of production. Now, the sea is not as capital-intensive. It takes actually, on average, I think, 11 days of product productivity to build up a stock. So not as much stock to deplete. So it's, it depends on... If, if you assume the whole planet would be as capital-intensive as forests, uh, you could probably get there, but possibly the whole planet isn't. So it gives you a sense of, wow, the different risks associated with these different costs. And the, the question we really should start to address is to say, how much of the world GDP would we now start to have to invest to move from this curve to a probably more sustainable curve? That's, I think, the, at the core. Now, how do we operate? How much more time do I have to talk? About 10 minutes? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, Global Footprint Network started about, we started three years ago, recognizing that the interest was growing around the world. Um, and that we needed to bring the strongest people around the world that were thinking about these topics together to say, how can we move it to the next level, from an awareness tool to a policy tool? Uh, and we have the three partners that I mentioned here, like the uh, uh, Institute of um, Integrated Sustainability Analysis, uh, EPA Victoria, and, and WWF, and then there are some other organizations in um, Australia too um, that have joined Footprint Network to say, now we have to get together as a common voice, as a common uh, force, because there is a race to be won. You know? Can we institute the ecological footprint like GDP in countries? Can we bring ecological limits? Can we make them central to decision-making everywhere? And the way we do it is to say, like GDP, GDP won the race because Governments wanted it, and they said, we just want one GDP. You know? So they, got all, they locked all their economists up and said, now come up with one GDP. And since then, has been established and, um, the same way around the globe. So it's equally flawed around the globe. And what we need is a footprint that is equally flawed around the globe. So you can compare it across 
continents. And the way we will implement it is to say within 10 years, we want to have 10 nations that have the footprint established like GDP. Is that possible? Actually, we start to realize we dreamt too small. We started last year. We're now negotiating with the European Union, with Eurostat. I think they may be ready within three, four, five years. And then we would have 25 countries in just one fell swoop. And then what? Then we have to think of a new goal. Um, so, so it's possible to actually make a huge transformation. When it started 15 years ago, people said, you're crazy to talk about limits. People don't like to talk about limits. You know? uh, but now, actually, many government heads are talking about ecological limits, about ecological footprint, about what it means for uh, their well-being. Now, when they ask me, what do we need to do? You know, I always have to have an answer. Mm -hmm. um, and I would say, we just say two things. And one is extremely self-serving, you will think, because I will say, we need good accounts. Uh, but the reason is very simple. I don't know how many of you have been to business school. Have you? Some? No, a few? Yeah? Very good. Uh, I haven't been, but I'm pretty sure that what I would have to go. I'm pretty sure there's no course where they say, profit, good. Loss, bad. Repeat after me. <laughs> I don't think there's... Was it this course? No. You skipped it. You just played tennis. Um, um, so no, but basically, the, the idea is, you know, managers, if they have the right tools, they can go out and just unleash their creativity and use their tools to really fulfill their goals. And I think the same way we need goals to attract the creativity of people to the right goal. So they can actually build, say, what do we need to do? The biggest challenge, and I haven't seen the university yet that was bold enough to put on their entrance story, say, what's the overarching mother of all research questions? I think it is, how can we live all well? How can we all have great lives? That's the biggest research question, recognizing there's one planet on 1.8 global hectares. So if you want to add something for biodiversity, half it would be 0 0.9. You can also make it electronic, you know, kind of have the, have the, uh, the number go down as we are more people or if we degrade, degrade land, etc. So that's the first piece of advice. Good accounts, you know, perhaps the accounting department doesn't make money on its own, but it's a good investment nevertheless. Second piece of advice, slow things first. You know, when you have a super tanker that kind of doesn't move in the right direction, um, you have to get on the right course early enough, otherwise the captain will lose his job and his boat. Um, and, and so in the same way, we have to think of the slow-moving stocks, how to address them first. What are the slowest-moving stocks from a sustainability perspective? One is uh, the human population. Replacement rate about every 75 years. You know, it takes, takes a long time to adjust numbers. Uh, what's another slow-moving stock? urban infrastructure. You know, I just was at the meeting of a, in a ministry in Paris, and we looked out of the window, and it looked exactly the same way as it did 100 years ago. I can't remember like, the day. And it, but it, it, it looks exactly the same, same view. Hmm? So uh, very slow moving. They're proud of that it's still the same view. You know? So slow moving stocks. If we don't adjust them quickly enough, um, we won't be able to wear it around. Other things, educational institutions. Um, they're very proud of having long established programs dating back to 1221. You know, Anyhow, so, so, so also minds are very slow at shifting. Um, ideas are very slow at shifting. So slow things first. Um, London recognized it. The Business Council there. Now, how is the Business Council called in London? Do you know that? Have you heard of Earth First? Do they exist here, Earth First? It's a US organization. In London, the Business Council is called London first. 
it's kind of a different perspective on the world. Um, and uh, they recognize using a lot of resources is a risk exposure. And just want you to know, so roughly, how much footprint could we cut down? Because if cities are built on resource consumptive patterns, it's like building traps for yourself and your children. Yeah? Yeah. It's like mice building traps for themselves. That's what we do. Or are we building opportunities? Are we building tracks on which we can thrive, on, on which our children can thrive? That's the choice we need to make now. They want you to know. Now, have they reduced the footprint? Not yet, but they feel at least we have a handle. We know what's, what's possible. In Sonoma County in the United States, um, there's a small group. You know, it's the market mead phenomenon. Have you heard of her? Yeah, small groups, blah, blah, blah. You've heard it. Uh, and it was actually within the small group, there's one person, dedicated person, who then invited others around her. Uh, and she said, let's have a footprint project here. And uh, she organized it so well. And the trick was really just kind of encapsulated. She knew footprint can produce controversies, and controversies can kill you. Uh, she said, oh, let's use the controversy as part of the project rather than being stopped by outside controversy. So just by using this small trick, I can explain you how in detail if you want. She was able to energize people so much that all the nine cities within Sonoma County, 400,000 people, decided to reduce their CO2 emissions 20% within 20 years, I think. And they have now systems in place to track how much CO2 is being emitted. And the United States hasn't signed Kyoto, as you may know. So in spite of that, that's what they took on. So just what can it produce? Um, Various industries have looked at it, or we can look at uh, different treatment plants, for example. Now, the most exciting thing that is coming up for me, I think, in the business world is the idea of footprint neutral. And again, the most exciting ideas that have affected the footprint actually don't, don't come from us, but from our partners or other people who kind of come to us and say, wow, that's a great idea. And say, oh, great, you know. And this one comes from Swiss Re, one of the largest reinsurance companies, together with UNDP, the United Nations Development Program. They said, we want to look at footprint neutral. Can we? Can businesses provide goods and services to their clients and satisfy them? No. And at the same time, reduce humanity's footprint. Is that possible? And we work with one electricity company that works with hydroelectricity to a large extent. And as you may know, hydropower has huge environmental impacts. Now, we compared it to the impact of coal power. Coal power has actually even 20 times larger impact per kilowatt hour in terms of footprint than hydropower. 20 times larger. So what could this company do? This company that now sells, or you, you buy 100 units of electricity from this company, hydropower. Yeah. Then what you can do is you can reduce your demand just 5%. That's very easy, just switching off a little bit of light from there. Yeah, there. 5% reduction, wouldn't even feel it. 5% reduction. You take these 5% and you replace existing coal power. You don't add it to another market. You replace, you, you decommission the same amount of coal power. Now, the decommissioned footprint, the 20 times, because it's 20 times larger, these 5%, is as big as the footprint that you have through, through hydropower. So, for the world, the footprint, humanity's footprint is going down. So, it's a very small effort. Can you see that? Yeah. So, it's actually, it's not just a little bit more efficient way to wreck the planet. You know? It's actually reversing, turning things around. It's possible. Wow, that's pretty revolutionary. Now here, talking about retail. We're working with a company, thanks to EPA Victoria. Um, it was originally Lendlease, then they moved over to G GPT. 
uh, where they analyzed using an EPA Victoria calculator that per square meter of retail space, it takes about 1,650 square meters of footprint to support it, not for the goods they sell, just for heating it, cooling it, etc. And uh, because of good labor laws in Australia, the person who calculated it wasn't fired. Actually, that wasn't the reason. The CEO realized immediately that there are enormous gains, you know, resource reduction gains, that also could translate into monetary gains. And rather than being a tightwad or saying to their renters, oh, we need to save money, actually saying, let's save the planet, it's a bit more inspirational. Uh, and so they're actually we're working with them very closely, having a retail calculator to help designers find out what are their options, how can they massively reduce their resource consumption while maintaining quality of life becoming drivers, and, and people are pretty excited. Now, just before, just to finish, I would like to show you time series of two countries, just to give you a sense of what the footprint can do. Just documenting what has been. Like, there has been one Spain over the last 40 years, and Franco died, and they started to have parties, and the footprint went up. Um, and, uh, and you can see the weather influence. There are better years to visit Spain and worse years. Uh, it's probably, when it's down, it's probably a good year to visit, you know for tourists, uh, but not so good for agriculture, etc. So anyhow, um, in retrospect, you could have planned your holidays more effectively. Um, so what you can see is that also the layer cake, uh, how is it changing over time? Is there more chocolate on it or more of the fluff stuff or whatever? And, so, and, um, and, and you can do it for other countries too. And here's kind of more a tragic case, North Korea. North Korea, so just documenting what it has been, uh, when the Soviet Union collapsed, uh, put both China in trouble. They couldn't export as much rice for them anymore. But also they couldn't, North Korea couldn't get uh, as much energy anymore. So not rice from China and not energy from um, the Soviet, former Soviet Union. And as a result, they had an involuntary, massive reduction of footprint. You can even see it here in a per capita term that the reduction of energy also led to a reduction in biocapacity. They didn't have the agricultural, like the fertilizers and the tractors anymore to, to work their fields as hard. And that led to about two million people dying. Very tragic. So what you see is that ecological limits can really affect well-being. It's not just an abstract thing. And if you compare the world as a whole, say, okay, is the world more in a situation like Switzerland, where I'm from, where we can just, because of our wealth, import any resources we want, or are we limited? Is, there actually, is the import of resources for the globe relatively limited? Mm. You know, so it's a rhetorical question. I know, you know the answer. So anyhow, so we can start to see history reflected in curves. So just to finish, I'd like to say the following. The ecological footprint is a standardized way to measure what has been me immeasurable, contentious, and often misunderstood ecological limits. I have friends they don't like gravity. They think it's hard to go up the hill. They say, thanks for sharing. You know, so in the same way, I have friends that don't like ecological limits. Thanks for sharing. It just is. Now, how can we live with them? Let's have tools. You know, how to live with a budget, like with money. You know, okay, two planets may be easier, uh, apart from the commute back and forth. <laughs> uh, but um, that's what we have. So how can we live well um, on one planet? Now, with that, I would like to come to conclusion, to build on the president of the country I live in right now, uh, who very wisely said, ask not what you can do for the footprint, ask what the footprint can do for you. you know, so it's not about uh, see you lighter, it's about uh, what can I do for you, mate? Um, 
And um, so how could we move forward? Different invitations to you. Research projects, we need support. And how can we better answer our question? Uh, do you want to become partner in Footprint Network? Do you want to become part of a winning team? You know, because uh, I think it's a race we're going to win. We'll make a big difference. Contact us. And uh, there's two... Actually, I will, I will give you a lot of different tools now because now it just has started. One is, if you're interested in updates, the newest and latest and hottest of the footprint world, put down your email address in a legible, legible way. <laughs> uh, do you want some more? Okay, we can just pass it around. Um, and, um, and, and then you may get an update uh, every few minutes. <laughs> and, uh, and then there are many other tools too. One is the following. Oop. It's called the ecological credit card. Have you heard of that? It's a zero interest credit card. Uh, it fits perfectly in your pocket. I'll pass it around. And, and it has the following features. Actually, there's just a new one coming out. We call it the newest accessory in uh, Swiss pocket knives because it's sponsored by the Swiss government. It has a Swiss cross in front and then you can unfold it like a Swiss pocket knife. Has many uses. One is that it has such exciting information on it. You can just take it out of your pocket at a dinner, a boring dinner, or, you know, in a bus ride. Don't know what to say to your neighbor. Say, did you know that it is full of facts? Full of facts. And they will be so interested and fascinated by your deep, profound knowledge of the world affairs that they will invite you over for dinner for free. So it's a credit card for free dinners. So keep it handy and have some more if you want to bring some cheap gifts to your friends get, earn some more brownie points here yeah, a few more but they're limited uh, so, so I'll just leave them here now there's more stuff because we're about resource reduction <laughs> one stuff is actually um, <clears throat> we are running a footprint course with Man is Manfred here too Man yeah, Manfred in the back yeah he's hiding he's always there, like the the brightest people in the very back. And, uh, um, and we'll be doing a course, a three-day course, uh, and you can also come to one course. The first day we'll be in Sydney together, and then the other two days will be in Sydney too, where we, uh, we actually help people who are interested to find out how can they apply these tools, how can they be lead these kind of projects. And if there are enough people interested in Melbourne, we decided yesterday we will offer, if there's enough critical mass, to do the second and the third day also in Melbourne, so to help you save your footprint. So if you're interested, I don't know actually how we should do it because I'm tempted to, should we have, should have another sheet? Do we have a, perhaps a, another white sheet or something? Or, or should I point to Krista? Yeah, Krista Milne, she's the driver of the footprint project at EPA Victoria. She will take your address and hunt you down afterwards. Say it again. Yeah. Are the first days next Thursday in Sydney? I said it wrongly, yeah. The first day is in Melbourne. That's how it is. And the second and third day is in Melbourne as well. But if there's enough interest in Sydney, I got the wrong speech, I think. I got the Melbourne speech, I'm sorry. If there's enough interest in Sydney, we consider having the second and third day also parallel in where? Sydney. Okay. Yeah. So that's and then as as a last thing, if you're bored in the evening and the news are depressing or something, 
Then you can always, as an option, put this DVD into your TV and invite your neighbors and say, isn't that entertaining? <laughs> and this is also sponsored by EPA Victoria. And I think we have a few copies. And if more people are interested in just one, because we have just one copy, I think, or some more, then you can also go to Krista and put your name on a list. And depending on her mood, she will send you one or not. So you have to be very kind to her. Okay, so that's all the gifts we have tonight. And then we'll have an auction. No, no, that's it. That's all. So um, with that, I would like to open the floor for questions, because you may have some. And if not, that's okay, too. And uh, I'm looking forward to more discussions and some of you becoming partners, becoming co-runners in, um, in the race to sustainability. So thank you very much. Yeah, you have a question. Yes, quick one. Yeah. I'm a little uh, concerned about when you showed the, the map of the world mm -hmm. with the creditor and debtor nations. Mm -hmm. Yes. Australia is an apparent creditor, mm -hmm. yet its lifestyle mm -hmm. is that of a debtor. Yeah. Whereas the poor people of India mm -hmm. are actually individually creditors Mm. but collectively are debtors. Mm. Okay. And there can be the potential for apparent creditors mm. to export their debt mm -hmm. if there's an economic incentive to do so. Okay. Did, did, did people hear the question? In some, okay. So, I tell a different story. Say, okay. This just documents how much people use compared to the biocapacity within their countries. There's just a description of that state. Is it fair or not? Now, what I'm surprised about is that the World Bank never gets hackled for, um, for publishing GDP numbers of all countries. It's unfair that Ethiopia has such a small GDP and the United States has such a high GDP. It should not be published because it's unfair. It just is. They publish it, and that's what it is. This is just what is. Is it fair or not? That's another question. It just is. Australia has a huge footprint per person, and they have a lot of biocapacity. Is that fair or not fair? It just is. Now, it has some implications. Perhaps there will be negotiations, and we say, actually, we should have all in the world equal access to biocapacity. I'm very sympathetic to that view, uh, particularly by, from being by Switzerland, from Switzerland, where we have very little biocapacity. It would be an upgrade of our opportunities. Um, <laughs> Also in Holland, people say it's unfair. We shouldn't look at biocapacity as really meaningless uh, because it's just artificial borders around our country. And they say, interesting, uh, perhaps you should go to the Swedes and ask them for a few islands. No. Perhaps. Or, or why do you look at your own national debt if it's just an artificial border? Why don't you just share your debt with the French? Um, <laughs> anyhow, so um, I would say... It just des describes what it is, and you can say, what is fair, what is not fair? Yeah, we just have different challenges. Is Egypt sustainable because they have small footprints? Uh, but they use actually, th it would take three Egypts to sustain them. Just are different kinds of challenges. It just shows sustainability challenges. Yeah? Or the Swedes, a uh, uh, very large footprint. Uh, they try to, through their international development assistance program, make everybody Swedes around the world. Is that possible physically? Yeah. Probably not. So I'm, I'm, I'm not saying this is fair or unfair. Just what is. Just what is. And it doesn't say this. No? Now, countries still think territorially. And 
Brazil still thinks they have dominion over their boundaries in some ways. And they say, if you want us to preserve our biodiversity, compensate us. Because you stupid Germans, you already kind of cut down your own biodiversity. Now compensate us. And I think it has some interesting healthy effects too, because in the past, now Brazil starts to recognize we have assets. Before they said, oh, these stupid Germans, they like biodiversity. Let's ask them for some money. You know? And then the stupid Germans gave them some money, and the Brazilians used it for something else. Because they didn't believe in having assets. Now suddenly they say, wow, we have assets. We should protect them. So I think having a better sense of what assets do you have, how much do you use, is an incentive for both those, the debtors and the creditors, to say, ecological capacity really matters and will radically transform our relationship to our use of resources. It's not a map about fairness, but it, it, it provides a context to ask these very hard questions. Who should have access to resources? How do you want to distribute it? Reduces the incentive on people who have significant credit mm-hmm. and an established lifestyle to resist change because they're not a debtor nation according to that definition. Mm-hmm. I accept all of yeah. the stuff yeah. that mm-hmm. you're making, but I'm, yeah. I'm just saying I can also see yeah. an argument where people could be mm-hmm. profligate by virtue of being a creditor. I think this, I mean, this is just information what is, and I think for people who are lucky enough to be in a country, now if, if, you are, if you still have, let's say, like Canada or like Australia, say you're a creditor, and you say, okay, let's be as elegant as the Dutch and use three times more than our country because the Dutch did so well. Yeah. Or you can say, wow, in a world that already uses 20% more than what, already, what is being used, possibly having a reserve is the most strategic asset we can have. Perhaps we should even more reduce our footprint. It's in our interest to reduce our footprint because... It's a strategic asset. We have it in our hands. Let's not copy those dumb Swiss you know, in some ways. So, so I think it, the information itself provides the right directional incentives for both. I would say, whether it's fair or not, it's just that's what it is. But it's a good point. I mean, these are the discussions I think we need to have. Otherwise, without this map, we wouldn't even have a discussion. You know? So that's a discussion we need to have. So you can choose to have an open discussion about resource distribution, or we can say, let's not shed light on it. Let's just use kind of our gunpowder. You know? I think I prefer the tedious negotiations over resource distribution over just um, the stronger arms. Yes? One concept that I can see, or one consequence of this concept, is that you have a chance to evaluate as you evaluate all the goods and services that mm-hmm. we acquire from the globe, there are certain goods and services that create a greater impression than others. Mm-hmm. Could you tell me what those are? In other words, what what it's, it's a bit of an unfair question, I'm afraid, but what is the what is the one thing that each of us generally do that causes our footprints to be large? And consequently, what is the one thing that we can change that would have the most dramatic decrease on our one thing, one thing to change the world. I would say it, it boils down to saying, how can you have the best life possible? Because if you really look at your own quality of life, you say, what's the most limiting thing in my life? Many will come to the realization it's not your income, it is your time. How many hours do you have on this precious planet? If you start to think from this perspective, you say, oh, how do you want to use it? Do you want to use it to, use it to earn more money? Right? How much time do you actually have to give up for each dollar you earn, or is it really fulfilling my dreams, you know, and, and just 
dollars may be necessary, but it's not the goal to optimize. Your optimization is satisfaction with life. And if you really start to think through it, most people will radically reduce their footprint just as a byproduct. So if there's only one thing you're willing to do, maximize your quality of life, I would say. But in, in a deep way, I mean, just thinking, where do you drive satisfaction from? I don't know if that adds. If you want to be more proactive, join us. That's the other thing to do. <laughs> hmm? Is the key question, how can everyone have a quality of life? Not only how can I have a quality of life, how can be selfish like that earlier question. Mm, yeah. Just everyone, yeah. hopefully I have the incentive that if I yeah. do it for everyone, then I ultimately benefit as well. But if I don't start that mindset, mm. I can go down the wrong path. Yeah, perhaps. I, he just wanted to do one thing, so perhaps that would be the second thing. <laughs> <laughs> Invite him to do a second thing. <laughs> it's just behind you. Okay, yeah. So we have two questions. Two, three, four. Mm-hmm. Two, three, four. Yeah. Right. Um, both the ecological footprint and triple bottle bottle yeah. mm-hmm. rely on introducing new measures. Mm-hmm. The whole world operates on the measure of money. Yeah. At the moment. Mm-hmm. It's the thing that mm-hmm. all of us understand. Yeah. Like this. Mm-hmm. Have you ever looked at trying to translate these new measures back into the mm-hmm. currency that we all understand and which essentially drives sort of economic behaviour today? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the question is, did we ever translate, because people understand money better than anything else, did we ever translate footprint results back into money? Um, Basically, if it translated into money, we wouldn't need the footprint. But we need a footprint because there's a contradiction, a deep contradiction, I think that's what sustainability is all about, between ecological necessities and social preferences. Social preferences sometimes are measured easily with kind of dollar values or whatever, and ecological necessities is are there enough ecosystem services available? And we just looked at what's the value we could derive from one square meter like used as an office space downtown San Francisco as opposed to using it for growing, I don't know, wheat. You know, so it's like a factor of thousands of difference. So, so um, of course, the office space uh, wins out. So that's going back, down back to a, a dilemma that uh, how many economists are here that have heard of like uh, diamond, Water paradox, have you heard of that? Yeah. Just in, in a nutshell, how come water that is so essential to life mm-hmm. is less valued than diamonds that are inessential to life, apart, of course, for my wife? Um, <laughs> how come? And it is because it's harder to get the next pound of, or kilogram of diamond than the next kilogram of water. So at the margin, it's easier to get water than diamond, but in absolute terms, water is more important than diamonds. So this contradiction, I think, fuels the sustainability conflicts where, where, where money doesn't automatically translate you know, social preferences into ecological necessities. So that's why we need both things. There are two separate budgets that we need to fulfill. The financial budget, do we have enough money to do something? The ecological budget, do we have enough planet to do something? They're not trade-offable. Yeah. It just seems so hard to take a value system that exists mm-hmm. and impose a new value system alongside it. Mm-hmm. And given the figures you showed there, mm-hmm. we may have not enough time to achieve that change in value systems. And if there was a way to use the existing mm-hmm. value systems but to place onto those yeah. value systems mm-hmm. um, the value of water, mm-hmm. the real value of water mm-hmm. rather than the value mm-hmm. we place on it mm-hmm. today, then yeah. mm-hmm. it would drive yeah. behavior and consumption yeah. 
We can link stories to money. So for example, we looked at the scenarios. We can say, what does it cost to get on a sustainable path? Right. Yeah? Because we, we have more physical understanding of the, fi of the path we have to get to. And then we can say, how much of our money, of our world GDP, do we need to invest to move on the right track? So we can link it back to budget considerations. And so, so yeah. In the end, it's kind of, how do we allocate money to achieve physical goals? Yeah, good question. Yeah. You were second and then you were. Hmm? Is, that, is that correct? I think. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, um, actually, a couple of things. One, mm -hmm. kind of in um, response <coughs> from the previous mm -hmm. question, I actually have a concept um, of a way of valuing goods and services mm -hmm. with a kind of economic value, but based um, rather than market value, based on environmental mm -hmm. impact and social mm -hmm. justice. That yeah. I'm really interested in developing. And Fantastic. I want to get in touch with you guys, actually. Yeah, in the Bay please Area, do. So mm -hmm. Oh, wonderful. Them, That's yeah. very close. So just that in passing, mm -hmm. but I think it's mm -hmm. related mm -hmm. to me. The other thing was, I just wanted to ask you, I'm a little confused mm -hmm. um, about the way that you're calculating the footprint within national borders, mm -hmm. kind of following from another yeah. questioner, that the um, environmental impact is mm -hmm. looked at with uh, as I understand, within a national border, as compared to... No, it's not. Yeah, yeah no. If you, look, if you look at what we say by footprint, it's a bit of a sloppy way, if I would be more precise, to say how much capacity is necessary to support the lifestyle of people who have their primary residency in that country. That would be the precise way of saying it. So if I drive a Mercedes-Benz, for example, which I don't, and it's produced in Germany, and I happen to live in the United States, then that would be added to the United States footprint being a resident in the United States, even though I'm a Swiss citizen. But it shows up on the map growing. Does it show up according to the countries that are using the most, or does it show up according to what's which, been depleted the most? Which, you know, which, which map? The comparison maps of the growing shopping mall. The shop yeah, oh, oh. Exactly. Um, I don't know where it is, but I know what you're talking about. That's this shopping mall map, this one. Um, it's essentially where it's being consumed. Where does the resident live? Where, or where, yeah. So theoretically, but we're not that sophisticated yet. If you go to Mexico on holidays and eat a big steak, that should be added, you being American, I assume. No, or no, Australian, living in the Bay Area. So your primary residence being you know, in the Bay Area it would be then added to the U.S. footprint. Mm -hmm. How does that account for China then? Because China, I assume, is because of its productive consumption rather than... It's, um, it's consumption, <coughs> consumption. Yeah. Okay, we, we define consumption, we call consumption apparent consumption, which is just to say, we think that serves households in that area. So all the consumption for exports, all the resource consumption for export, we would call exports. And so that's subtracted. So the Volvo produced in Sweden does not add to the Swedish consumption footprint, it adds to the, whatever, Dutch consumption footprint if they drive the Volvo. Does that make sense? Yeah. yeah. So here we just see high densities, high population densities with relatively small footprints. Here the driver is high footprint and high population density. And here it's high per capita footprint, relatively low overall densities. Yes. You had number three and then you get, and then we go, we work the way to the back. Mm -hmm. um, you had a budget which was 2.2 uh, hectares. Yeah. Mm -hmm. More than half of that is um, CO2 
mm-hmm. um, tr- trying to absorb excess yeah. CO2. So mm-hmm. this is burning fossil fuels, yeah. trying to suck the CO2 out. Yes. Now, I'm a little confused there because I'm not really sure. I mean, land itself doesn't actually absorb CO2. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can grow a forest on it, mm-hmm. and then it will absorb CO2 mm-hmm. while it's growing, mm-hmm. and then it'll stop. Yeah. So in the long term, you yeah. can't really just absorb CO2 by yeah. using land. Yeah. So I'm not really sure yeah. what you're measuring there. Yeah. But it also, I mean, is is that number, I mean, there are probably quite a lot of remediation techniques we're going to have in the yeah. future, mm-hmm. which could be used to Absolutely. CO2, mm-hmm. which we haven't bothered to use. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So is that a misleading number? Okay. Um, the research question is, how much of the regenerative capacity is occupied by certain activities? The activity here being... CO2 emissions. So essentially it says, how much bigger would the world need to be to cope with the service of absorbing this excess CO2, which is not being absorbed by the oceans right now, but it's just left in the, left in the atmosphere. So how much of our biocapacity would we have to dedicate or to, to do that on its own? Because now our mitigation technology is, let's see what nature does. And, um, and so how much nature would we need at the average productivity that we have right now? So this reflects current productivity. If we actually do that for some time and then force mature, their ability to take on extra CO2 will decrease. And so the footprint per ton of carbon will grow even more rapidly than it does right now. If you want to have more details about how we've calculated it, and we have cross-checked like with IPCC literature and FAO numbers, etc., we have about a 30-page paper that explains the uh, calculations and the, the um, potential errors in the estimate, and we are very happy to share that. So, if you're interested, let me know. And then, um, I don't know, is that enough? Maybe, yeah. maybe, maybe it's a different question. Okay. Um, the, the, the growing crops is calculated, used up a certain amount of area to grow yeah. crops. Yeah. Um, now, of course, the difference in, in yield per unit area between, yeah. say, the way agriculture okay. is mostly done. And the way agriculture could be done, the way fantastic. Farms. Yeah. Huge, yeah. fantastic. So that could be the trend of the way Good. very easily. Yeah. yeah. So this documents what is. And we express things in global hectares for a given year. Global hectare just shows the average productivity of a bioproductive hectare around the globe, which is changing over time because some areas are becoming more productive by using more fertilizers, for example. Uh, others are less because of salination problems, whatever. So this just shows the average productivity, a global hectare, uh, of that given year. Now, this just documents what it is. If technology shifts, suddenly we can produce doubly as much stuff per hectare while the consumption stays the same. You know? Essentially, the ratio would be cut in half. Do you understand it? Isn't, isn't that what has been happening since the 70s, Green Revolution? Uh, and that's documented. So we, we, look, we look back and say, we don't see the crop footprint grow that rapidly because increased production has happened not because of expansion of land use, but because of um, higher yields. So that's all captured. So it doesn't... It, it, doesn't it, that make just one planet a kind of misleading statement? I mean, if, if, if the fact we've only got one planet mm-hmm. isn't really the limit on us, if, if our ability to, to grow food has been expanding this rapidly, despite the fact we only had one planet. It's just the ratio. It, it, it looks at every year at the ratio between what has been possible in that particular year with all the technology that was applied that year compared to what was used in that year. So it's just the ratio. And I think it's, yeah, I mean, you, you, it's, I think, a mathematically accurate way of saying it's just the ratio between the two. It doesn't show in this graph 
but we can show other graphs. In this graph, it doesn't show to what extent it's attributable to population change, um, higher per capita consumption, um, higher efficiency or lower efficiency, uh, or higher bioproductivity. So these are the four factors that affect this ratio. But we could look at which, which factors drove this difference, how much. So, so this just shows overall aggregate. Yeah, there's more information we could show. So should we work through the back? So you first, and then... My, yeah. mm -hmm. my, my question follows on from that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Is, does, does your model look at some of the uh, reduction in that ecological capacity because of human activity? Like a lot of those things we are doing are very destructive. Yeah. Loss mm -hmm. of biodiversity, the desalinization, yeah. sound. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Uh, yeah. Climate change, yeah. desertification, yeah. loss of forest. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. And that, is that. Right now, yeah. Right now, what we use is official UN data, and the quality of these data points. Some people question, and there, there, there's a big time lag often, or, and, and some of these aspects are very poorly tracked. So we just say this is the official data set. This is the interpretation we give you from your set. If you want better data, give us better data. So that's just. So in some ways, our approach is very selfish. We are more concerned about our scientific reputation than about humanity's survival. So wherever we don't know, we kind of probably underestimate the footprint and overestimate biocapacity. And still, we can show overshoot at the global level. Now, think about this. It's totally absurd. In our calculation, if you look at aggregate, if you overfish somewhere but underharvest timber, that looks like it's balancing each other out. Of course, that's not the case. That's absolutely untrue. So it's a, it's a very minimalist condition, extremely minimalist condition for sustainability, and we're not meeting it. So that's our point. So that's why we want to have as robust of an argument for overshoot as we can. Yeah. But you can go into more details. We could make it more sophisticated. We have now 15 people at Global Footprint Network. We have two offices, hopefully three soon. soon. Um, one in Switzerland, one in, um, in Oakland, California. And um, it takes 15 people to raise the funds or go to talk to people. I just talk to people. I don't actually do much calculation. You know. In the end, there's just one and a half people who can dedicate their time to do all the national calculations to update them. Now in France, there are about 7,000 people working on GDP. I think in Canada, 2,000 people working on GDP. We have one and a half calculating all the assets <laughs> of 150 countries back 40 years. You know. So there's, I would say, proof of concept. That's what we have. Now we need to engage with government agencies. That's what we do. For example, in Switzerland, there's now a, an audit underway to say, how are these data points that we gather consistent with Swiss data sets? And is it put together in a way that the Swiss can accept, etc. That's what we want to do, country by country, as a first kind of entrance. Uh, and we need all the help we can. All the more reason for us all to join the network. Absolutely. Yeah. Very good point. Thank you so much. You get a free membership. No. Okay. <laughs> so, um, Rob, Rob, first we have first we have the uh, the lady with the, the blue scarf. Yes. Yeah.
Tomorrow? Wow. <laughs> I mean, that's what we can start to map. And, and, and one point that I realize is, you know, the footprint reduction in North Korea didn't happen because I went lecturing in North Korea. It <laughs> happened. It was an involuntary reduction and very painful. And, and many, actually, if you, one of the brutal things we found out when we looked at the world as a whole in the last 10 years, if you compare what's the footprint change over the last 10 years in the wealthiest countries with 1.1 billion people, as compared to the poorest countries with about 2.2 billion people. In the wealthiest countries, the footprint went up per capita 8%. Uh, we talked about at Rio, so let's be sustainable, and we danced, we held hands, now we have 8% more footprint. And then in the, in, in the, in the, in the 2.2 billion people of the poorest population, the footprint actually decreased about 11%. Uh, and again, not because of me lecturing there. It's just the involuntary footprint reductions. Um, actually, AIDS, you made, AIDS is one of the tragedies that has led to not such a rapid population increase as predicted. So most of the so-called population reduction successes can be attributed to large tragedies, two being one, the AIDS epidemic around the world, particularly in southern Africa. The other one, uh, decline of the Soviet Union, leading to just uh, people being so unstable, not wanting to have children because they were just felt, felt so out of sync with with the possibilities. So, so I'm just saying um, th these things can be tracked, and, and I think what, what you start to see is history plays out in these in these numbers, and um, you can see are we moving the right direction or not? Uh, well, China's, China's one child, child policy will also mm -hmm. start pushing over the limit too fairly soon. I mean, <clears throat> their population growth is, is well truly peak, and will start to be in a continual decline. Yeah, can also be tracked. I mean, that's yeah. We can track what happens. Yes, Rob. Mm -hmm. well, two questions. Uh, mm -hmm. Was uh, to, to ask for some interpretation of that uh, global uh, map showing uh, predators and predators. And uh, my question is, would that map, the colours in that map, would they still be the same if the uh, calculation was done not in global pictures? Mm -hmm. uh, yes. Wonderful. Yeah. There's one particular beautiful one with, that talks at you. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's that's it's a very good question. So. Would this be different if you look if you used local hectares rather than global hectares? Actually, it doesn't show it here, but this shows the ratio between how much you use and how much you have. If it's dark green, you have one third more than what you use. If it's if it's if it's dark red, you, you use one third more than what you have. Does that make sense? So it's a ratio. So even if it was in local hectares, the ratio is not is not affected. So it would be exactly the same map. Uh, um, the, the, the other thing about uh, online calculators, there's a, there's a plethora of online calculators where you can find out for yourself how many planets would it take if everybody lives like me? 
some people that's a very enriching experience. Um, and I've been involved in some of these calculators myself. Um, and actually, we were venturing out again to say, now we need the next generation of a platform to do that. Um, not because I want to tell people, you're so bad, you know, because that's, uh, we don't believe that that's really a motivating factor. And I think many people stay frustrated with the calculators because at the end they just say, okay, if everybody's like me, it takes seven planet, uh, planets, and then what? No. So, so we want to make it more playful and empowering. And I think also help people to think more about systems change. Uh, what kind of... A, future is possible, and then we think more about scenarios, for example, um, that then it becomes playful in the sense that one thing would be to start to make that into a video game and say, can you land the airplane or not, you know? You can, you can choose four dials, population, consumption, efficiency, and biocapacity, and then you can see, okay, how much pain do I want in which of the f four dials, you know? So, and then you can, you, can, you can optimize pain across four param parameters. For the world, and then anyhow, so, so to make it a bit more playful and, and get this thinking out in a way that is not as um, uh, finger pointing, I think in some ways that's our challenge. And at the same time, maintain consistency with the national accounts. So we have to provide information at the highest quality level possible. So we're now just embarking on such a project with WWF uh, Australia and EPA Victoria together, and we want to build that into a larger platform. But it's a kind of a long-term project. But yeah, but but your, you, I mean, your your project has been inspiration in terms of bringing humor in and kind of engaging people uh, in great ways. So it's 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 an inspiration to us. Thank you. Uh, yeah. Uh, I'm wondering. Uh, similar to the question. Yeah. Uh, I'm wondering if there's been much research in what uh, what the experience of people it is, uh, the experience of people have when mm -hmm. they learn about this. I yeah. I'm still learning about it now. Mm -hmm. And uh, because, in a sense. Um, you know, we've got a secular religion of mm -hmm. a faith and belief in economic growth. Mm -hmm. And um, you're pointing out in a very economic way, mm -hmm. uh, sort of like the G GDP, mm -hmm. order, that, you know, uh, the kind of panic is heading for mm -hmm. bad news mm -hmm. in a way, and the captains of industry are saying we need more economic, more economic growth, mm -hmm. and you're showing them as rationally as possible that it's not going right direction for humankind mm -hmm. and so what I'm saying is I, I would imagine that aspects of hope and despair and other things you know, crop up mm -hmm. in people's mm -hmm. minds mm -hmm. you know, uh, whether it's done as a game mm -hmm. or scenario building or all those mm -hmm. things do you know of any, is there, has there been any research about this sort of thing? Like, um, there, there is some research. Uh, even, uh, research? Uh, there's, yeah, and, and more research is also welcome. And there was just, I think, one master's thesis from the UK that analyzed one of the footprint calculators on how does it affect people, to what extent do they feel empowered or discouraged or whatever. So these are very important aspects. And I think um, the, like pain is probably one of the less effective educational inspiration tools. <laughs> I think in some ways. I, mean, I think there are three forces. Some people say there are three forces of making things happen, you know, apart from gossip. Gossip is very powerful. But um, um, like pain or f like pain and fear is one. Gain or greed, you know, and the third one, awe. Um, and, that, and probably that's the most interesting one, that kind of building something without a polarity or just kind of a draw and saying, wow, something else could be possible. Has there been research been done on policy makers and people like that? What, what, how they respond to this? Because they've been brought up on mm -hmm. sort of economic yeah. mm -hmm. measures. Yeah. What we see is, I mean, most audiences 
like if you like if you look at stakeholders, they respond extremely positively to it. I mean, we have many heads of states that use the ecological footprint. They may not follow up on it. There's so much constraint or pressures. They have to do all kinds of things that don't fit together. Uh, but it seems to resonate. Um, so um, it does work in, in some ways. And of course, there's some people like there's always people who kind of fear change. Um, yeah, but, but we see actually a very fast uptake. The European Commission recognizes that they have to look at capacity. It's, it's an, or, or, I mean, if you look at Swiss Re, the business community is not just one homogeneous community. Swiss Re has been extremely active in climate change. Or if we talk about, like, that was actually a striking moment for me when, when Bush declined to engage with Kyoto very, and, and tried to kind of have his own memos. And the same, in the same issue in The Economist, and The Economist is not the most progressive news outlet, you would say, uh, where, 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 where the Bush policy was discussed, there was a double-page ad, both by Shell and by BP, saying, we need to deal with climate change. Now, what's wrong with this world, you know, where, <laughs> where the oil companies themselves uh, lead um, the world leaders? Yeah, so anyhow, so it, it's not that homogeneous. We say, let's sail with the wind, because there's a lot of wind out there. Um, yeah. Yeah. Oh, one, one, one more question. Okay. One more question. So, you and then you. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. My name is Denise Quinton. I'm from Norfolk Island. We met some years ago. Yeah. The Sustainable Development School mm -hmm. in New York. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I've been working in the last five years to lift the um, profile of the ecological footprint in Norfolk Island and to try and, uh, in the South Pacific, a number of our islands are being very affected by the population versus the land mass. And Norfolk is 3,800 hectares, and at times we have up to 3,000 people mm. living on that land mass, mm. including our tourists. Mm. So if we divide what the World Wild Fund mm. has come out with, which is 7.7 .7 hectares, we're only supposed to have about 438 people mm. on that percentage of mm. land. Mm -hmm. And of course, when we look at the green of Australia, and we are a territory of Australia, there are parts of Australia that aren't doing so well compared to other parts. Mm -hmm. But one of the things I've been able to do is to take 28 acres of land and turn it into an experimental prototype community of tomorrow. Mm -hmm. And as part of that, we're going to be using the ecological footprint. And tonight I've brought for you a gift. Oh, thank you. One of them is a thousand pine trees to be planted for the ecological oh, footprint. Thank you very much. That's, not, that's a good start. It's a good start yeah. for a small piece of land. And the other is a small thank you. Oh, wonderful. Thank you very much. To your organization. Thank you so much. Thank, thank you very thank much. You. Thank you. <laughs> thank you so much. Thank you so much. There we go. Yeah. Um, uh, my question is directed back to, to the graph uh, with North Korea. Mm -hmm. So um, North Korea's footprint uh, decreased because of um, the social um, and economic um, uh, effects that, that um, from the collapse of, of Russia and that. Um, and so you saw a decrease in the, in the footprint. Could it work the, the other way, that by decreasing the footprint too far, you can actually... Um, have a, a large effect on your lifestyle and actually start to bring in negative 
This was, this was absolutely negative. I mean, it's an involuntary reduction. Two million people died. I would say that was significantly negative. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, but, uh, That's what we want to avoid, involuntary yeah, footprint like, reduction. You're talking about, you know, that we want to try and, and like, reduce, um, you know, re you know <coughs> reduce um, our footprint ourselves, you know. The, you know but, um, but if we go too far, mm -hmm. Go too far ourselves and actually, uh, yeah. I mean, I think these are these are exactly the questions I would like to leave you with because I mean that's the question: uh, Does ecological capacity matter or not? What would be the implications? Is it useful to have accounts about our, our ecological assets or not? So I mean, I'm glad you're raising these issues. And there's actually there's only one thing that I, I think I have to add at the very end of the presentation to say: See you lighter. <laughs> Thank you very much.